Thanks and good afternoon. Um, uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you attended the 7 a.m. session I did? Okay, and then how many of you attended the 1040 Dynamics of Management of Acute Pain? Okay, a couple people. Thank you. Um, obviously, some content overlap a little bit, but not too much. Um, what I'm going to try and do is, I think, talk uh, a little more about some of the practical clinical application of some of this stuff. Excuse me. <clears throat> I also wanted to uh, manage or say I don't have any um, disclosures per se, but I, I did serve as the co-chair for the American Pain Society's 2016 post-operative guideline, uh, and I just got off a conference call. We're um, doing a commissioned evidence review, a comparative effectiveness for opioids versus non-opioids for uh, AHRQ for the CDC. So we're starting to look again at um, the overwhelming amount of evidence that's kind of scattered all over, not a lot of high-quality evidence, but on how best to manage acute pain. Uh, and it still is a bit of an enigma for, for really the right way to do it. So here are my learning objectives. Again, uh, I'm going to talk, uh, try and bring cases in to illustrate some of this stuff, but I'm going to focus not just on drug treatment, but how important the assessment piece is and how to apply a rational approach and then kind of some per clinical pearls, hopefully, about taking a stepwise approach when you have a patient who you've thought you've got a plan in place and they're not doing quite so well. Before we start out, though, just at least try and be a little more interactive. I'm just curious uh, if there's anything in particular people find very challenging or they want to talk about today. If, if people would be willing to share that with everybody. Anything that's particularly challenging about managing acute pain? Yes, please. People come in on more than what they're prescribed, so they're. Yes. Yep. So, chronic opioid tolerant patients that are on doses higher than you would normally use for acute pain. Yeah. Big, big issue across the country, I think. Yes? Did you say pelvic pain? Yeah, pelvic pain and the inability to image this and really get a handle on it and kind of how do you manage that? Okay. Yeah, I'm having a little time hearing, so I'll, I'll keep going. But hopefully we'll have some time for questions and discussion at the end. But I am going to try and march through some of this content. So I think, you know, there's many challenges to acute pain. I don't know, being in the pain field for 30 years or so, often it's the chronic pain that seems to be the most complex and difficult. But I think acute pain can be pretty tricky, too, even though for the most part it does tend to go away by itself, uh, even though we think sometimes it's all of our little changes in our plans by, by 72 hours. Sometimes people are just better because of the time course of it. Um, but we know that acute pain can lead to changes in the nervous system uh, that can actually lead to the development of chronic pain. There's a lot of people struggling to figure out, is there ways we can dampen that? We know that nociception elicits important responses in patients that can't communicate with us. So in acute pain, whether they're in the operating room or the recovery room or the ICU, sometimes, uh, you know, we're trying to make sure that they have, they're not going into withdrawal if they are on chronic opioids or heroin users, and that we're managing their pain despite their inability to communicate with us. 
We know that multimodal analgesia is the way to go, but as we've talked a lot today, individuals are individuals, and it's not just a blank recipe that you can apply to everybody. You, you have to really kind of tailor that to the, that individual's needs. The timeline is relatively short. Sometimes you have to make two or three changes in a day, and you don't always often have time to um, sometimes adequately find out if that's the steady state that's going to be the most effective. There are a lot of safety issues with all of the different treatments that we have. We know that high-dose opioids uh, can create uh, more hypersensitivity and um, acute tolerance, and as we've mentioned, this population that's already on opioids. So there's lots of challenges, I think, that we have. Um, so let me take a case to start out with. This is a 28-year-old opiate-naive female. She's got a history of chronic pelvic pain and some anxiety. She underwent an exploratory laparotomy late yesterday and was treated with kind of a standard adult IVPCA morphine overnight. She had a milligram with a lockout of six minutes. And she's pretty much been awake most of the night, maximizing its use. On rounds, she's awake, she's anxious, she's tolerating clear liquids, and she reports her pain as severe, 10 out of 10, and she's very unsatisfied with her pain control. Um, she's pleading for something stronger, and she states that her impression is that she would be pain-free. How many of you have had a patient who said, so-and-so told me I would not have any pain? Right. Uh, now, I really seriously wonder, did anybody ever say that directly, that you're not going to have any pain? I have a hard time, I mean, yes, maybe years ago somebody might have said that, but I don't think that's exactly what somebody said. I think somebody probably said, we're going to take care of you, we're going to control your pain. It's kind of what people hear and what they interpret, that I was told I was going to be pain-free. So words do matter, and uh, I think getting uh, better assessment and information is, is critical. So think about what, it, what do you need to do if you're in, in front of this patient, what kind of uh, assessment information? Because there's a lot in this case, right, with her chronic history and her current state and what the options are. So I, I want a couple of background uh, slides just to talk about this. We know that pain does not equal nociception. There's not this direct linear correlation between the amount of tissue trauma someone has and what their pain experience is going to be like. It's interesting to me that the International Association for the Study of Pain is currently rewriting the definition for pain. And um, it's not too bad. You should go online and take a look at that. They're trying to better uh, put words to this complex sensory and emotional experience that's so individual and subjective. But I love this quote. It says, it's now generally accepted that the experience of pain does not rely solely on noxious inputs, but many variables interplay with the experience, including memory, mood, environment, attention, and expectation. Um, if you are interested, I would steer you to look at the work of Howard Fields that can really explain in a scientific manner how expectation does have a robust effect on people's experience of pain and their response to analgesia uh, and, and the whole thing. So here's John Lozier's famous uh, onion of pain, and you'll see that nociception is at the very uh, center, but all we really see is kind of that outside skin, that behavior. Uh, Dan Carr has written some very nice things about instead of calling this biopsychosocial, we should probably call it social psychobiologic because Pain assessment is a social interaction, and, and there's a lot that happens just assessing pain. 
I think for the most part in acute pain, the universal uh, method is just to use 0 to 10, right? This woman is reporting her pain of 10 out of 10, but that doesn't really give us a ton of information about her. Now, clearly there are plenty of studies that show some association between the number people give us and how that interferes with their function. Most of this came out of cancer pain early on and chronic pain, but certainly there are similar diagrams to this for acute pain in terms of functional interference. And it gives us some cutoffs. You know, generally, we think of pain of 1 to 4 as mild, 5 to 6 moderate, and 7 and above severe. And uh, we tend to treat based on severity, so, so there's some helpfulness there. But if you think about it, how much uh, does that pain change with certain interventions? I mean, how often does someone whose pain is 10 out of 10 go down to 1 out of 10 uh, based on certainly pharmacologic intervention? It, it's very rare, so it's pretty complicated. It's also a, a very important issue when you're talking about acute pain to talk about pain at rest and pain with activity um, because they're different. And not all drugs work for pain at, with movement or, or pain at rest. So, it, so again, a better assessment. This is one of my favorite articles. It is about folks with chronic pain, but it was uh, nicely done where they, they said, you know, how is it that you come up with that number when somebody asks you on a zero to 10 scale what that number is? <coughs> Excuse me. And the people in the study said, well, you know, it's complicated. There's, there's a number of internal and external factors. But in the end, what the authors said is, um, they concluded that a 0 to 10 pain intensity rating is not that discrete intensity or severity phenomena the way we present it. Uh, in the end, what it was is what that pain meant to that person and how they thought we were going to respond. So there was a lot of information about the meaning of that pain experience versus the severity of it. So again, uh, 0 to 10 is just a piece of your pain assessment. So think about the patients that you see in the acute environment. Think about this woman with pelvic pain. Uh, most of us, I think, were trained to really look at and assess this sensory dimension. Where is it? What does it feel like? How severe is it? And we don't really have very easy ways or quick assessment methods to look at that uh, emotional, cognitive, spiritual dimension of the pain experience. Um, one of uh, the health psychologists I worked with a number of years ago in Wisconsin said something that was very profound for me working in trauma hospitals, and that is that when a young person is in a big trauma, it tends to kind of regress their coping styles and behaviors about a decade, about 10 years. So it was kind of an aha moment for me. We often see a lot of 20, 21, 23-year-olds who've been in a big trauma and... Um, Rather, they're just really difficult to try and figure out what's going on. Are they drug-seeking? Are they anxious? Kind of what's going on? And again, these are people who probably have had very little experience with health literacy and being in a trauma. And they, you know, if for me anyway, for some of these patients, I think, well, they are coping like a 12-year-old, uh, which is, explains some of their behavior. So again, trying to understand this is really important. So here's just uh, my... Recommendations, again, mantra about doing a thorough pain assessment. When somebody says their pain is 10 out of 10, we've got to kind of step back and say, are we talking about your incisional pain or your low back pain? Or is it, you know, your throat hurts from being intubated or having a tube in it? Um, you know, what, what can we do? Or are you just, like, uh, scared and suffering? And 
Um, and again, trying to tease out, is there a neuropathic component to this? Because we know, for example, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories don't tend to be very effective for neuropathic pain unless there's an inflammatory uh, piece of causing that neuropathic pain. Um, myofascial pain doesn't respond very well to opioids. A lot of people who are in bed for several days can get a lot of myofascial pain, and that's not the best, you know, movement is probably the best. Getting them out of bed might be most helpful. I really like this Kappa. I don't know how many people have heard about it. It came up a couple of years ago. This is not a validated assessment tool. It's rather a guide to have a normal, natural conversation with a patient. So rather than going in with these kind of drive-by pain ratings, you know, what's your number now? What's your number now? Is to kind of, in a normal conversation, say, how are you doing? Are you comfortable or not? Is your pain better, worse, or the same? Do you think your pain is controlled or not controlled? I mean, how far off the mark does it feel to you? How is the pain uh, interfering with your ability to do your recovery activities, physical therapy? Can you sleep? Uh, we've actually built this into our anesthesia acute pain service resident notes, and we are, are trying to get it built into Epic as we move um, from Cerner to Epic as a way to document. But a number of hospitals have done this, so that this is actually how the pain assessment gets documented. And I think it makes a lot more face value practicality. The other thing that we've used, and we have integrated this into the records where I am, is when reassessing someone after you've done an intervention is to say not what is your number, but how well did that work, right? How much relief did you get? And again, this is a validated scale. This comes out of analgesic trials, and uh, you say to the patient, again, it's self-reported by the patient, did you get none, slight, moderate, lots, or complete pain relief? And it's been shown in numerous studies, uh, chronic neuropathic analgesic studies and others that typically it kind of depends on where someone starts. You know, if they start with a pain intensity of five out of 10 versus 10 out of 10, um, that Clinically meaningful pain relief is about 30% or one to two points on that 10-point scale. <coughs> Excuse me. So it changed my conversation with patients to say what you can expect if your pain is 10 out of 10 and I'm giving you a drug. It's not gonna go away. It's not gonna necessarily go down by 50% or more. I mean, we're hoping for 30 to 50% relief, but um, clinically meaningful, successful analgesia is partial relief with, with manageable side effects. <clears throat> so this is um, something that Charles Argoff and Misha Bachkonia, who I think are talking in the next couple of days, published a number of years ago, and I used to use this when I did a lot of inpatient consults at the University of Wisconsin, to just, when you're doing that big assessment, kind of categorize the patient you have in front of you to try and help direct which way you're gonna go with your treatment. Because if you look at this diagram and you think about, um, let's say you have an 85-year-old who's got an acute neuropathic pain from zoster with some comorbidities in front of you, that may be very different from the young heroin user who's relatively healthy, except now they've got a, a inflammatory infectious cellulitis of some sort in terms of what you can do and what you can't do and kind of where your priority is because the priority of the treatment might be some of that psychosocial stuff, some of that coping uh, versus, you know, let's throw in all of the kitchen sink drugs that we have available. This is a good example, I think, of how complex it is. This is a consult I had a number of years ago. 
uh, on a woman who was post-subday number one from, again, an exploratory laparotomy of some sort. I can't remember why she had a belly operation, but we, we had a consult because she wouldn't get out of bed and move. Um, she said she had too much pain. So I went and talked to her and um, sometimes would use a pain diagram to try and get a sense of, well, what kind of pain are you talking about? And as you know, pain diagrams can be super helpful to look at distribution and type of pain. Now, do you see an incision on her belly on this diagram? I, I literally, she, she wrote starts here. So she's got her chronic spine, kind of back pain. Uh, she looks like she, she's a, a slightly obese uh, woman in her like late 50s. She looks like she's got some diabetic neuropathy, um, some osteoarthritis, maybe some myofascial pain. I mean, she had all kinds of stuff. And I'll tell you, what was interesting is what got her out of bed is the nurses were too busy to bring her down uh, caffeine, and she was in caffeine withdrawal for coffee. So she finally, like about 2 in the afternoon, said, I'm going to go get my coffee. And she got herself out of bed and went down to the nurse's station to get a cup of coffee. So, uh, yeah, big picture here. There's a lot going on. Okay, let's go back to this uh, opiate-naive woman we have that's had... A laparotomy for chronic pelvic pain. So she receives a one-time dose of IV Ketorolac, uh, 15 milligrams. She was actually converted from IV PCA to oral analgesia, 5 to 15 of oxycodone every three hours. So uh, some questions for nurses in the room as well as prescribers. You know, at the time of that transition, do you give her an IV bolus and an oral dose at the same time? And why would you do that? Why would you ever do that? What's the rationale? Do people understand? I mean, I have this issue a lot in the hospital I'm in now when patients have a peripheral nerve block and IV medications. It's like, you know, don't give them at the same time. You know, try to see if that peripheral nerve block will work a little and then give the IV. I mean, do you understand when these drugs peak? So having, um, make sure staff understand what's first line, second line, and kind of onset and peak. Um, What's her risk for respiratory depression? things we have to think about, what else is going on. Uh, and, you know, if, you're, if you have a new order, what's the first dose you give her, right? And you've got some idea of how much she's consumed of morphine over the last 20 hours or so, but, uh, you know, there's always these tensions around people trying to figure out what the morphine equivalent dose is from IVPC to oral, which really is a lot of, a lot of junk science that the... the uh, Morphine equivalent doses are not uh, very super helpful or reliable in these situations. So thinking about IVPCA, I was kind of uh, pleasantly surprised uh, way back in the early 90s. You might remember the very first Agency for Healthcare Policy and Research guideline was on acute and post-traumatic pain. And as part of that evidence review at the time, they did a side look at the data of conventional PRN medications for opioids, which a lot of it was IM, versus IVPCA, and uh, they really didn't find any advantage to IVPCA except for convenience. Convenience for the patient and convenience for the nurse. And there have been subsequent big analysis of PCA studies, really, again, showing not a lot of benefit. The, uh, zero, the 5.6 mean difference in pain reported intensity was on a 0 to 100 scale. So five points out of 100 probably isn't really a big punch for change in your pain. 
They really didn't see a lot of difference in opioid consumption total. In fact, patients with PCA took a little more than when the nurse administered PRN. Um, <clears throat> no difference in length of stay, side effects, except for maybe a little greater pruritus with PCA. So certainly PCA has its place if somebody can't take oral or if somebody is super anxious. We talked about its use for patients with opioid use disorder this morning, but it's not the black box that everybody should have. And this person is tolerating clear liquids, and so oral analgesia is really recommended as soon as possible. Uh, based on the evidence from this 2016 APS guideline. Now, I don't have, we don't have a lot of time to talk about all of the, I don't know what the word is, I don't want to say chaos, the frustrations around use of range orders and joint commission and other accreditors and stuff, but there are some uh, guidance papers. We just published the third consensus statement from the American Pain Society on the use of range orders. Uh, Deb Drew, in about two months ago, published some clarification working with Robert Campbell from the Joint Commission about what the standards say and what they don't say. But the standards basically do not say that you should prescribe range orders based on a 0 to 10 intensity, that that's very dangerous to do. Um, although I think a lot of surveyors have shifted the country over to have orders such as that. So um, again, we can talk about this offline. But I would refer you to those documents to really make sure that, because um, range orders can be confusing. And as we, we talked this morning, it's really important to schedule your non-opioid analgesics. So what is the risk for this patient now that we've put her on oral analgesia? I think uh, you always have to consider that everybody is at risk with any dose in any situation, particularly in the hospital setting. The risk may be greater uh, with higher doses, but the occurrence is probably higher than what's reported in the literature. And uh, there's been a number of, again, guidance statements on that in the last couple years. In fact, in 2014, the Centers for Medicaid issued this uh, statement to all states that said uh, that you really should tell patients that you may need to wake them up in the middle of the night to check on them for their safety, that uh, we do really have to have some guidance around that reassessment piece for that. Uh, I, we saw this earlier today um, in the, this other presentation about what are the risk factors for sedation and respiratory depression, and I think, again, you all know um, many of those, but I have them listed here. But um, also think about what are the other CNS depressants that you are, this patient may be receiving. Uh, I remember we did a naloxone review a couple times in the hospital I used to work at and um, did some statistics and granted they were just descriptive but looked at a huge population over a year and it looked like um, probably the single factor that came up as statistically significant was whether in the past 24 hours they'd received another CNS depressant. It wasn't their age or their dose or their surgery or some of those things I just listed. And one of the big culprits was Benadryl. You know, Benadryl is used very widely and can be uh, compounding. <coughs> we also heard this uh, 1040, some perhaps uh, evolving information about maybe gabapentin and pregabalin contributing to respiratory depression. And I, I have to say personally, I'm a little hesitant about that, and I wonder if that's because nobody turned off the spigot for the opioid when they gave the, the gabapentinoid, because, you know, we used to give it in the water when I lived in Madison. Everybody got, you know, 24, 3,600 milligrams of gabapentin and never really had any problems with respiratory depression. Yes, people get sleepy and sedated and foggy, but they still breathe. 
but that's my personal thing. So I think, again, we think we know something, and then 10 years later, better data comes out, and there are things I've said in my life teaching around pain that I know now are not true. So I think we always have to be a little suspicious. The other thing for respiratory depression in the hospital setting is snoring. Now, this is something we talk to nurses about all the time. You know, yeah, your husband snores at home, but he's in a different situation now. He might not, you know, he's got other drugs on board and he might not be able to self-arouse. So when somebody is snoring or certainly falling asleep mid-sentence, that, that's trouble. That's something that people have to know to awaken and further assess people. Okay, so think about this patient we're talking about. What would you have done on hindsight, right? I'm not exactly sure what happened in terms of what somebody told her, but, um, you know, she really spent her first 20 hours, it sounded like, pretty much just on opioid alone. Now, a lot of people, that's pretty rare. They might have Tylenol scheduled, but there would have probably been some other things we could have planned to do, including some non-pharmacologic strategies. So this is always a challenge, right, in the workflow. How do you develop a, um, opportunity and process so that some of this stuff does get planned and provided beforehand? Well, certainly um, everybody is in the mode, I think, of talking to people about goals. Um, trying to define realistic aims with patients, considering their pre-admission pain levels or opioid use, and really not promising something you can't deliver, not promising a specific pain rating, like your pain is going to be less than or equal to three. That, that, what does that mean? How, how can you possibly promise that? And really talking about functional goals. Our goal is to keep you safe and control your pain, but you're going to have some pain, and it's important that you're able to sleep, and rest, but also that you can get out of bed and move and cough and do all of those things. And, you know, understand that, yes, we're going to use opioids, but we're not going to use opioids for six weeks. There's going to be a, a time limit to that. So I, at least in the hospital I work in now, we did a lot of work with videos and uh, patient handouts to really have a universal, consistent description of what well-controlled pain means, and you'll, you'll see it here um, below. But there's lots of different ways to word it. So I think whether it's acute pain or chronic pain, you have to look at goals as multiple as well, right? It's facilitating recovery. It's trying to reduce the stress of the pain, whether that's the lack of sleep or the fear. I mean, it's difficult. Not all of these analgesics can suppress the stress response. But um, again, minimizing pharmacologic side effects and where we can, trying to prevent secondary problems. So it's kind of similar to chronic pain, although there's a little bit of a reverse of stuff. Again, you've seen this multiple times. You'll probably see it multiple times again, the iconic cartoon of what balanced multiple or multimodal analgesia is. So think about that pain pathway from um, Transduct or transmission, transduction, I can't, I can't even, you, you know what it is, from the start to the finish, tip to tail, right, uh, as well as the down regulation of pain. And so you're, you're not giving like three NSAIDs or two or four opioids, you're giving drugs with different mechanisms of action that together can hopefully provide better pain relief. And also consider the importance of the non-pharmacologic strategies along with that. Uh, and there's plenty of those um, around. We actually have integrated uh, doctoral acupuncture students into our acute pain service, so um, 
They are here on our pain service two days a week, and they offer acupuncture to everybody unless there's a contraindication. And we just submitted a paper. I was really pretty, you know, surprised, but also very happy that these patients reported significant benefit from even a single acupuncture uh, treatment. So it's not necessarily that they had a series, but. Um, Movement, TENS, education, you know, improving sleep, all kinds of things. And I just want to call out a couple of those. When the evidence review was done for the 2016 post-op guideline, I was kind of shocked to see the pretty good level of evidence for trans-electrical nerve stimulators. There were over 41 randomized controlled trials for incisional pain. Now, I think most of us are familiar with it for use for chronic pain, but not so much for acute pain. And this was done in thoracic, uh, cardiothoracic surgery, abdominal, orthopedic, hernia, and mixed surgery. And it almost looked like you're given an NSAID with an opioid in terms of a little bit of pain relief and a little bit of opioid sparing. But of course, not the side effects that you could potentially get with an NSAID. Uh, so both the hospitals I've worked in, we've had all of the acute care units purchase a couple of these units um, that patients can use on their incisions. Um, in fact, the one that we have recently, you know, it's 40 bucks online at Amazon. I bought my 80, my mother's 89 now. A couple years ago, I got her one for Christmas, and she uses it on her knees, on her OA. So um, they're nice because they have two channels, so the person can put it on their chronic back pain and on their incisional pain, and they can play around with it. and. Um, Heck, it, it, it can't hurt as long as there's not a contraindication. So something that, that we can put in acute care settings. Now, every major guideline on acute pain since the late 1990s had said, unless there's a contraindication, you should give a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. Uh, and I think we've heard, and you've probably had experience, there are some patients who don't need an opioid. They can do very well on just a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory and or Tylenol and some non-pharmacologic. However, um, I always say, I don't know if this came out of the old John Belushi movie, there's, there's more excuses than you can think about to not give an NSAID, right? Uh, so again, this is a very individual thing. What is that individual's risk for ulcer, for renal function, for cardiovascular events, or for healing? Uh, a lot of controversy about the potential inhibition of bone growth and anastomosis. Again, when the evidence review was done in 2016, there was insufficient evidence, and you know we had surgeons involved um, to say that you should blanketly not give NSAIDs. So you have to look at the individual. You know what kind of bone healing is it? What kind of risk do they have for nonunion? Uh, so very much a place for use of NSAIDs in acute pain. I've already talked about pregabalin and gabapentin. I think you saw this slide earlier overwhelming amount of evidence about the use of even just a single dose preoperatively. Now, postoperatively, I wouldn't just give it to everybody. Um, my understanding is the data shows it's most effective in what's called pro-nociceptive, which I think just means really painful surgeries like spine, uh, arthroplasty, and amputations. Uh, and again, you know, you're not going to get 100% relief or, you know, 50% reduction in their opioids, but this can be very helpful for sleep and anxiety. Um, but you have to give enough. You know, you, you can't, you know, I, people start at 100 of gabapentin or 300 gabapentin. I've never seen any data for analgesia below about 1,200 a day. You know, we absorb it differently. I mean, it's got complicated stuff, absorption or whatever, so 
give it. So here's my Vegas diagram. I was thinking, well, we're going to be in Las Vegas. I'm going to um, just add something. This is probably not the best graph from this article, but this is a recent article that, if you're interested, I would um, direct you to by Hugh and all. Uh, they have a lot of forest plots. Uh, the size of these yellow dots is really the amount of patients that uh, were involved in these studies. But this was looking at giving just a single dose of either gabapentin or pregabalin preoperatively. Excuse me. And then they compared it with placebo and really found uh, that um, for all of these, there was less opioid consumption than placebo, and increasing doses of either of these significantly decreased the use of opioids. And you'll see that... Um, actually helped with post-operative nausea and vomiting as well. So there, this is a really a nice uh, review of all of these different doses as a single dose to kind of look at their effects. It's kind of complicated, but I thought it looked like a Vegas kind of graph. I'm not a graph person. Uh, ketamine, again, is, you know, not for a, major, a minor surgery, but for a, for a major surgery for somebody who's uh, opioid tolerant, it may provide some dampening of that wind-up and hyperalgesia, and it's been shown to um, be opioid-sparing and reduce pain and maybe reduce um, postoperative nausea and vomiting, although some people think that might come from the reduction in opioids. But again, you're not seeing like a five-point change in terms of the ch change in pain intensity. These are pretty small changes uh, in pain intensity. There was always a lot of concern with some of the providers I worked with about the psychomimetic effects, but I don't know. I, I personally haven't seen uh, that has been really problematic. Yes, some people get nightmares and some people get hallucinations, but that isn't life-threatening, and you know you can deal with that. Um, the use of local anesthetics is certainly huge. Uh, there's, again, I think some controversy about moving away from catheter techniques to doing more infiltration techniques. But I personally think that if you have a, a bad bone injury, there isn't anything that's going to control that unless you can block that nerve or cover it with some local anesthetic. Uh, but a lot of uh, individuality in terms of is it an area you can cover with a block? What are the patient's anticoagulation issues? Um, again, something that you need a pain service or some expertise. So it's something you've got to really work, I think, at trying to get that systematized wherever you are. Uh, we, we see a lot of patients that um, can't have it for uh, various reasons. Um, they've had a lot of spine trauma or uh, anticoagulation or infection issues, and so... Um, using IV systemic lidocaine can be very helpful. Now, to me, the review of literature looks like this is most helpful for visceral pain. So again, I don't think it necessarily helps if you have a broken bone. But um, uh, the nice thing about the data for IV lidocaine is it looks like it does help dampen that uh, neuroendocrine stress response. Those pro-inflammatory mediators have been shown to be somewhat dampened by systemic lidocaine. Um, but how long do you actually run this? Can you run it for more than two or three days? That's kind of questionable. Um, I, I've been involved in two hospitals that have used it for maybe 10 or 15 years, and um, I was always like, this is so safe, you know, it's low doses, 
The side effects are so related to the serum level. You know, we used to give it for neuropathic pain. But I will say we had our first seizure uh, in the hospital I'm working at now this winter, and I was shocked. But I'll tell you, it was a patient in the ICU who could not communicate very well. And I think it was on day four. And uh, so there was, it was very difficult to pick up those early symptoms of mild and moderate uh, systemic lidocaine toxicity. So again, proper patient selection and understanding how to monitor and having the patient report if they have some of those early signs. I think um, her serum lidocaine level was seven something when it was drawn after. So clearly it was in the level that could cause that seizure. Um, I heard this morning at 1040 again about uh, magnesium as a potential option for post-operative pain. I hadn't really heard about that until a couple years ago. Um, but it makes sense. Magnesium is a major ion for neurotransmission, and apparently we get most of it through our dietary intake, and a lot of surgical patients are NPO or may be uh, deficient nutritionally in magnesium, so, you know, I don't know if you need to check a magnesium level beforehand or not, but this is a study that was mentioned at 1040, and this was 20 randomized controlled trials looking at 1,200 patients, and um, they found combined favorable results of magnesium uh, over controls for pain at rest and with movement. So again, uh, it's an option of something that you may have in your toolbox to consider using. Okay, so I didn't forget about Our Lady. Uh, 12 hours have passed. People have been thinking about what should we do. Uh, She's still reporting suboptimal pain control. She's tolerating her oral diet. She's um, had several doses of 15 milligrams of oxycodone along with 650 of uh, PRN Tylenol. Obviously, that's a pretty easy mark, right? I said already we should probably have scheduled that and give it a little more, but <clears throat> what do you do now? What, what, what do you say to that surgical resident who's treating the patient? Give her some anxiolytic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's suggesting giving her an anxiolytic. Yeah, maybe that's an option. Um, we certainly try and avoid a use of benzodiazepines in this population if we can. We use a lot of hydroxyzine for that. Yep. So um, here's kind of a, again, a framework, I think, to sit back and think about a patient like this. I always say, is she on the right analgesics? Emphasis with an S. Are there other analgesics that might help based on the type of pain? She's, you know, she's had one time anti-inflammatory, right? Um, but are there other drugs that we could or could have given her or scheduled? Um, is it the right route? She's on oral, which I think makes sense. Uh, is this the right dose for her, for her individual needs? You know, maybe she could have tolerated 30 of uh, IV Ketorolac, or maybe she should be on oral ibuprofen or naproxen. Is it the right timing? In surgical populations, especially orthopedic populations, you know, on rounds you'll hear, oh, it was terrible. Well, it turns out that their PRN medication was given after their physical therapy, right? Or right at the time the physical therapist walked in the room. So it really isn't that the analgesic is wrong, it's that the timing was way off. And some people might need a schedule or some pre-medication. And again, this, you know, right understanding of the message and the expectation. So we developed a little card because we used to have the surgery residents who would call the, the acute pain service and on post-op day number one and say, with a patient like this, her pain's 10 out of 10 and she's maximized the PCA and I don't know what to do, 
we need a pain consult. It's like, well, what do you mean by maximizing the PCA? And they would have no idea. The nurse had said that, and they, they don't know what that even meant. Like, how often did they use it? Do they use it 100 times an hour or, you know? Um, so we tried to give them kind of a stair-step way for the surgery resident to kind of take the next step before they had a pain consult. So this is for someone who's on oral. And we don't want to just jump back and regress and start going back to IVPCA because that's probably not the best thing to do. It's like, okay, let's go forward. Let's schedule the Tylenol. Let's give an adequate dose, a gram. Um, maybe schedule some ibuprofen or alternatively schedule Ketorolac for 24 hours unless there's a contraindication. Let's try some gabapentin. Um, at an adequate dosing. Maybe we should titrate the opioid a little. Maybe she needed more than 15, you know? I mean, that's arguable. And then consider a pain consult. And really make sure that you understand that she's back on whatever she came in on. Maybe she was taking medications beforehand. What, what's her history? If she were IV, MPO, she needed to be on IV, this is what we would say for IV. First of all, reserve it for when you need it. People can't take oral or... Um, you really need rapid relief because of the timing around perhaps the takedown of a dressing or, or whatever's going on. And again, uh, this is just kind of the dosing. So to try and give them some, some ways to kind of like just step it up a notch before you just like give up. And again, we don't really have a lot of the non-drug stuff in here. Here's another case, 56-year-old, 280-pound male on high-dose opioids, including methadone 80 a day about to undergo lumbar surgery uh, in a month. So you have a month to get ready for this, um, for back pain and radiculopathy. This guy's super anxious about his pain post-operatively and wants some lorazepam. What are his risks for opioid safety, right? Is that a maintenance dose of methadone or somebody prescribing methadone for his chronic spine pain? Can you check the prescription monitoring program and find out well, actually what's, what's been given and what's, you know, is using, has he used lorazepam in the past? And how do you coordinate that kind of perioperative plan? So what's done pre-op? There's a lot of hospitals moving to pre-op clinics where somebody could come in and have a few visits with maybe the rehab psychologist and, um, you know, get medications in line. So um, I, I'm not going to, you know, with our time, belabor all of these, but just things for you to kind of think about. When someone is opioid tolerant, uh, there has, to date, been a lack of evidence to reduce the opioids prior to surgery, although there is some evolving uh, evidence that maybe that would benefit if you have enough time for some patients to reduce. I don't know that literature very well, but this is something that's uh, changing. It's, it's, it's hard to know whether it's the central sensitization from the chronic pain or opioids that cause this kind of hyperalgesic response. I don't know if that it makes a big difference. Clinical guidance is really that you should maybe consider rotating an opioid. Uh, if someone was taking PRN, oxycodone, or oxycontin before surgery, maybe let's use a different opioid for their acute pain. Uh, I think patients with chronic opioid often feel judged, just like patients with opioid use disorder, and are fearful that you know, you'll label them and you'll take their opioids away in this current climate. So there needs to be some patient engagement and reassurance. Um, talking about expectations, and you know, you probably do need some consultation with an acute pain service for a patient like that. Um, here's kind of a one potential recipe for uh, how you could put something like that together. And again, uh, emphasis on some preoperative medications, uh, something done well in the OR, you know, communicating with the operating 
room anesthesiologist. And, you know, maybe some lorazepam, but very sparingly. Uh, acupuncture tens. We have the care channels, some kind of guided imagery or some soft music or progressive relaxation, uh, lots of other things like that. Um, a last case I just wanted to mention that we talked about this morning. Somebody, for example, admitted um, with a, an infection with cellulitis. It's going to the OR on IV antibiotics, a history of heroin use, but reportedly stable on buprenorphine in the last six months. So again, uh, decisions need to be made. This is a really growing population about what to do. Um, this is more of an urgent surgery, but what do you do with the buprenorphine? Is this going to be a really painful surgery and a protracted recovery, or is this somebody we can you know, use the buprenorphine to help with uh, the acute pain, and how do you put a multimodal regimen together for someone like this? And what do you do for discharge prescriptions? This was um, talked about earlier again today, too, um, but there's a lot of literature now. Uh, one of the providers I work with said it's, it's been interesting to see the literature about how people have been admiring the, pro the problem because there's just tons of studies in the last year and a half looking at databases about discharge prescribing. But across multiple procedures, it looks like 42 to 71 percent of opioids go unused and remain in medicine cabinets. And persistent opioid use is just as likely with minor surgery as it, as it is with major surgery. So really, Giving less by the time someone goes out is better care. Patients don't call back like everybody's fearful of. They don't have more pain. Yes, they have pain, but it's not severe enough that they need opioids. Uh, and they use shorter doses. If you look at the CDC guidelines, they refer to the Washington Agency for Medical Director guidelines on perioperative opioid use. Um, and we just published a new, very specific kind of recommendation for the quantity to send people home with based on the type of surgery they have. Some of that is based on the Michigan data and a review of evidence, but here's what the Washington guidelines say. They say, develop a plan with patients to taper and stop opioids right at the beginning in your surgery clinic before they go to surgery. Avoid continuing or adding new, ben new prescriptions for benzo sedatives, anxiolytics, or CNS depressants. Don't discharge someone ever with more than two weeks. They may need to come back, they may need any prescription, but they should really not go home with more than two weeks. And really, that it, in the first six weeks, it really should be the surgeon that's responsible for this. Because what if there's a complication? Um, now, obviously, there are some patients that are distal that need to work with their primary care provider, but that, those handoffs have to be negotiated. You can't expect primary care providers to do post-op surgical pain management. Uh, and that for some minor surgeries, it may be appropriate to discharge patients on non-opioids alone, um, even if they were taking opioids preoperatively. I mean, they might go on their chronic opioid, but they don't necessarily need acute opioids for more than three to five to seven days. That the severity of the pain should have diminished uh, enough by then that we can manage it in other ways. Um, so with that, I think I will quit, and we'll take a couple questions. We have a couple minutes, and thank you for your attention and for coming. Hi. Um, thanks for asking. He's asking if there's um, struggles with insurance company about paying for uh, two weeks or beyond two weeks. Um, 
the Medicaid and the local uh, major insurance companies in Washington now will only pay for 42 tablets of anything. So they've really driven down the amount of opioids that people can have. It, yeah, it's yeah. They've really um, directed things in kind of a complete, like severe pendulum shift. I think. Yep. And you know, payment for buprenorphine is very difficult, right? When I think if you talk to Australians and other countries, I mean, we may be using buprenorphine as a primary acute pain analgesic for patients without opioid use disorder at some point, right? Or to pentadol, or you know. Well, I'll hang around here if people want to ask questions, but please feel free.